Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today we're going to do a semi-rare split show. We're going to start by talking about the late Craig Mack, and then a little later we're going to talk about our Jack White cover story, my Jack White cover story, which has caused some controversy and is, has provided some things to talk about. But first, yes, Craig Mack. Bad boy legend Craig Mack. And to talk about it, we have in the studio Chris Weingarten, Christian Horde, and John Dolan. Hey, guys. Hey. Hello. Yo. So, Chris Weingarten, Craig Mack, tell us a little bit about the story of how he got started, where he came from, just a, a little flavor of where he began. A little flavor began, in, yeah. in your ear about... Uh, uh, yeah, the give us a little flavor in your ear about flavor in your ear. Yeah, yes. well, Craig came from uh, Brentwood, Long Island. He was friends with Eric Sermon of EPMD. Yeah. And, you know, they used to to battle together. They used to, they were pals. And the year after EPMD's first 12-inch, Craig put out his first 12-inch as MC Easy. And it's a, a song called Get Retarded. And in that song, you can hear the makings of what would be his wild, futuristic George Jetson flow. And let's hear that for a moment. You will see that I'm a veteran and I'll send different type of rap styles through the air waving. Always do a show, cause all my fans are saving. And I put to rest any contest, tearing your rant and raving, but don't go wild. And what next? That was a sort of a, a single in, in cult hip hop circles. It wasn't a huge hit, but it was very, very well embraced. And what year you, was that? That was 1988, which uh, I would say is also rap's greatest year. Mm. And, you know, it's, its impact, you can actually hear uh, Dr. Dre and Cool J interpolated it for their song they did on the Bullworth soundtrack mm. 10 years later. Mm. Um, but, you know, it didn't work out for for MC Easy. And, you know, he was working jobs. His parents kicked him out. He was homeless for a month and a half. And he became EPMD's roadie. He carried their bags. Like anything, you know, anything to do. It's the same. It's almost like Tupac's story yeah. where Tupac would just carry bags for Digital Underground until he could make it as a rapper. And Craig Mack did the exact same thing for EPMD. And, you know, he was signing, you know, sending demos everywhere. And eventually he got signed by a, uh, a young mogul named Sean Puffy Combs who yeah. heard him freestyle outside of uh, the Manhattan Club Mecca. And the first single they put out was the song that ended up breaking Bad Boy Records, which, you know, uh, Flavor in Your Ear in 1994. And as you know, like within three years, Bad Boy Records would be having number one pop hits and huge multi-platinum albums. And we actually have a clip of uh, Funkmaster Flex talking to Sean Combs about just how hard that song hit, uh, especially in clubs at the time when it first came out. So let, let's hear that if we can. I never seen nothing like it. I, out of all the records I ever put out, out it was all, lifting. All it was lifting the building off. It was like <laughs> something about when flavor in your ear. When people first heard it, it was like food for their souls. It turned into a spiritual. It changed experience. the game on it. Yeah, it, it really. I'm gonna tell you all the pieces of that record. Is that Harv? Is that you on the beginning of the song talking? You know, the talk on the front <laughs> was nuts, right? But the ooh, <laughs> like everything, the way it was dropping yeah. was like, it was like 96, 1996 had, or I don't, 94, let me get my years right. It's like 1979 and 1994 uh, came together. 
and had a baby and it's flavoring your ear because the sounds and then the snare knock and then the, there was some dance niggas used to do to that record too that it wasn't even a legitimized dance but they did it when that record came on I love that interview because Flex barely lets Diddy get a word in. But yeah, sorry, yeah. go on, Chris. Yeah. No, and you know, the coup of Bad Boy Records, what you know, what they and this is this is sort of my own projecting here. What I what I think that they did that was so special was that, you know, since hip hop became pop music, it was really, really rare for the best MC in the world to be the greatest MC in mm. the world, or the, the most popular MC. Like the last time that happened was probably Cool J. And then, you know, we had years of like, oh, these like, you know, cool Beastie Boys experiments and not so cool Vanilla Ice experiments and, you know, Dr. Dre and Snoop, which was its own, you know, uh, it, it, its own sonic wonderland. But, you know, Puff, made these amazing technical rappers into pop stars and you know let, let's play a bit of flavor in your ear for sure let's yeah, hear that right now before we get into it Craig Mack, 1000 degrees you'll be on your knees and you'll be burning begging please brother freeze man's disputed and deep booted folks smoke that leaves your brains booted this bad mc with stamina like bruce jenner the winner takes an mcs for dinner you're crazy like that glue. I think that you could outdo my one two that's sick like the flu. Chris, break down his style a little bit because the, the stuff he did with sounds and syllables was was pretty special. Actually. Yeah, no, it's really, really incredibly funky, and it really is, uh, you know, just these like sideways accents. And you know, I love, I love that. You know, leave your brains boot. You know, like the way it trails off into mm. this, you know, you know, into oblivion. It's 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 so funky and so dope, and like you would not have expected it to to come that. That way and puff once said he was uh hip-hop's george clinton because his stuff is really off the wall yeah you know, interesting it's and he's a very very funky dude and you have to remember that his record and biggie's record if if wikipedia is to be believed were released a week apart the albums yeah. the albums yeah, yeah the full albums and uh you know they were marketed together there was a, a camp the big mac campaign like they were marketed together they both had a lot of the same producers. They were both, you know, puffy joints or both bad boy joints, you know. And I think that, you know, Ready to Die maybe was a conceptually stronger record and, and, and dealt with deeper emotions. And that's partially why when we think of 1994, we think of Ready to Die. But Craig Mack teed that up for Biggie. And the remix... Which had Biggie on it. Which had Biggie on uh, it. And, you know, when Puff says kind of half jokingly we invented the remix the flavor in your ear remix was the blueprint for the next you know 20 years of how what a remix would be instead of like oh we have this new beat on it by by a you know a, a wonderful producer instead we're going to use the same beat but we're going to get four hot rappers on it right and people are still doing that today and that is you know one of the the biggest impacts of what Puffy and Craig did. Yeah, I mean, Drake was jumping on Migos tracks because this yeah, happened. because yeah. they invented the yeah. remix as as we know it. You know, they didn't invent remixing, but they certainly invented what became... They invented remixes where you don't actually do anything to the mix except add more people rapping over it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there I mean, yeah. there, I mean, was a couple precedents yeah, yeah. for it. Like, you know, there was the, the Tribe Called Quest and, and Leaders of the New School, you know, scenario, 7MCs. You know, there was, there was a few precedents, but this was so gigantic that this became the model. Now, Craig's whole album was solid. Yes. 
But obviously something went wrong because that was kind of it for him at Bad Boy. That was it for him as a as sort of a pop sensation or even a hit maker. Yeah, it, no, it, he left. He left Bad Boy, and obviously it was not the same. And the record he did after that is a little more polished and and clean, and it didn't take off. Not any mark on his his lyrical abilities because he would appear now and then on other people's tracks and he would still be really really strong. One great example is the uh, the G Dep special delivery remix in like 2000, and you know and sort of the video to that nodded to the original Craig Mack video and it was you know during that whole time of 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 Bad Boy beginning to like embrace their own legacy, and so he. You know, Puffy even tease him up. You can hear him be like, you know, we're gonna do the remix. We had to bring back Craig Mack. So if we have if we have that, you know, years later. Let's do it. This is the remix. So let's bring back my man, Craig hey, Mack. Yo, you must wanna be in the Guinness Book of yeah. World Records as the dumbest for alive. Feel you gonna survive. You couldn't move through my terrain, even in four-wheel drive. And I'm your highness. So in the same interview that we put a clip of uh, Flex asks Puffy like basically like what went wrong with Craig and Puffy gets vague he basically says that Craig had had personal problems and it's unclear I, I think but one thing that we do know is that Craig ended up joining this sort of church alleged cult kind of situation and that's kind of where he's been uh, where he had been the last uh, few years I'm not too well versed on uh, what his religious affiliations in, in recent years have been. But I, I do know that he said that in the Bad Boy Reunion video, he would, you know, he was the big get that they couldn't have on the Bad Boy Reunion tour. They had, you know, Mace was back and all these people were back. They didn't have Craig because Craig said religious reasons. He wouldn't go back to that. Well, we have a clip of uh, Craig in his church and it's uh, interesting and confusing and, and worth hearing. Let's hear it. You'll be surprised how many people in the world know about Craig Mack. Yeah. That's what I tried to tell you when he showed up here. I didn't pay him no respect at all. Right. Then when they told me he had money, I showed him less respect. That's right. That's right. Amen. Amen. He, sure did. Now I see you got faith. I'm giving him more respect. Glory. Hallelujah. Now he, Thank you, Jesus. He told me he could do that a cappella. Is that right? Yes, in the name of Jesus. Well, I know to the world, the rap I kick will make you think I'm a lunatic. Lost my mind, I'm mentally sick. But for all mankind, this is it. New kingdom on the earth where the devil don't fit. No more bad times and no more wars. New Jerusalem, the city with the gold on the floors. Righteous laws, a thousand year pause, the earth rejuvenated, Christ illuminated. I fight for the cause. I kick down doors. The devil set I feel up. like we have the outlines of some kind of very fascinating arc here of a story that people don't have the full uh, answers to, but it's pretty interesting, right, Chris? Well, you know, Eric Sermon uh, was recently interviewed by a billboard, and, and he was saying that, uh, you know, the reason he wasn't on the Bad Boy Tour was because of his heart and because of his health. Yeah. And, you know, I, I do have to say, like, you know, rappers ending up as religious speakers is not uncommon. No, you know, it's, it's not. like it's, you know, Curtis Blow and Mace and Reverend Run and, you know, it's you get put through, you know, the the, the music industry is a ringer and it, it it pulls people through it and it definitely uh makes sense that a lot of people would turn to religion after that. It also obviously says something that he's forty six years old, he dies of heart failure. 
you know, that listen, there's no retirement plan with being a one hit wonder or even having, you know, one successful album. It's, it's a tough thing to be a musician. And sometimes, and sometimes people, you know, you're, you're out of money, you're out of insurance, uh, you know, in, in your forties, the music industry is a tough place, Ben. It's, it's, it's not just a rap story. It's kind of a decades long story. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, we talk about this all the time, you know, that everyone's doing retirement tours this year. Yeah. And, you know, and these are, you know, these are many of these people are wealthy and it, it really is like there is no path. There is, sure. no, you know, especially in hip hop, too, right? Because you can't just keep you can. But it's harder and harder to like, I'm just going to tour and tour and tour and tour and tour when you're Craig Mack or if you, yeah. you know, you're not ready to do it, you have these songs. It's just not quite the same thing as being a rock band and kind of like, well, we'll get back on the road and we'll make money that way a little bit and we'll play whatever these venues are, casinos and stuff like that. That avenue isn't quite as open to the hip-hop artists. Yeah. I mean, there are starting to be like a couple of those like nostalgia package tours and, you know, art of rap tours that are sort of opening yeah. that venue a little bit, but it's definitely not as established as... Uh, as, you know, rock bands and Vegas acts and all the different... Uh, all the different avenues you can take post fame. Totally. And before we move on, just kind of last thoughts on Craig Mack. How do you see his influence? How do you see his place in, in, in sort of hip hop history? Or is he like a guy like Big L, who he had slightly more time in the industry before, you know, his... And before, more pop And, and more pop. Yeah. But I mean, you know, Big L is sort of like, God, there was so much potential there and he died at much younger. But is it in some way similar to that? I think his legacy and perhaps unfairly <laughs> is going to be as you know sort of the starting gate for bad boy records yeah and you know he was an incredibly gifted mc and you know i definitely do think that people should go back and listen to his catalog and listen to you know his his lucy's and his errant verses because you know he he is just an incredible mc in that you know in that mode of like Redman and Keith Murray and, totally. and a lot of those 90s guys. Um, so, you know, as far as as influence goes, like he really is like one of those. Sweet, you, generous, kind of uh, like one of a kind. Yeah, 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 yeah. He basically got to the gates of the shiny suit promised land, but was not allowed to enter. Uh, <laughs> that's basically what happened. But so that's been us talking about Craig Mack. You're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. We're going to take a break. And when we get back, we'll talk a little bit about Jack White. Now who got the flame that comes to dime a dozen that keeps them buzzing? Taking that they fat when they bust. Welcome to the world of Mack. Welcome to Mack. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. 
What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind the scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. We're going to be talking now a little bit about Jack White. Jack White's on the new cover of Rolling Stone. It's a very blue cover, if you've seen it. And I wrote the cover story, and it was an enjoyable and interesting experience. And it, people are seem to be talking about the interview because Jack, as I kind of say in the story, in an age when people don't seem to want to say anything in interviews, Jack is still saying stuff. He did not shy away from saying stuff that he probably knew might might annoy some people and uh, he's not very apologetic and he's you know it's not like he's a retrograde dude saying stuff to be deliberately out of the times in fact in some ways this is modern jack white but still he's he's ornery and honest and uh, i ended up liking him and i mean but where do you guys see jack white's current kind of status in the world of music because he said that he's in between sort of big pop star and underground guy and i think he's right he's in that he is in this odd place right now and also he's without the white stripes which is was his big brand for many years but he's also been solo for a long time now and is a big festival headliner on his own so how do you guys see his kind of his state right now he sort of reminds me of someone who gets to have a kind of uh, uh, leeway that people don't really get anymore, who especially rock artists, where he gets to kind of be in the middle ground. It's true. It's like more like a 70s guy kind of journeying through his changes and whatever's going to happen and getting to make the records he wants to make. And he's still, you know, I'd say he's famous. He's not, hmm. and he's a rock star, I think, but it's not like he's, you know, a, a huge celebrity in, in, and he's not definitely, obviously not an underground artist. So it's right. I can't think of too many other people occupying that middle space, which used to be where most rock a lot of rock acts got to be like, you know, when you're, I keep thinking of like someone like Van Morrison, that's not quite, quite the right example, but somebody just keeps to make make a record called like a period of transition. Like he just <laughs> can keep making the album he wants to make and be pretty famous, but not a superstar. And I think that's, you know, he uses that freedom in a weird way on this record, for sure. It's kind of, a, as you call it, like a bracingly bizarre record or something like that. But it's bonkers, entertaining. But yes, yeah, yeah, bonkers. Bracingly yeah. bonkers. Yeah. Right, yeah. But Boarding House Reach is the name of the album. And, uh, you know, I think Christian, you guys were both in the room when his publicist first yeah. came and played us tracks from it. And what I enjoyed, especially on first listen, is, you know, you hear a lot of rock now and it's just like, it's just dull. It's hard to get excited about very dutiful rock. And this album is not dutiful at all. It's nuts. Let's hear a corporation from this album which is very very different for Jack White let's take a listen so what you start to hear is you know it's it He's breaking away from song form almost. He's not really interested in writing verse-chorus songs as much on this album. And, you know, listen, is it experimental by the standards of, you know, actual experimental music in 2018? Perhaps not. But for him or for any kind of 2000s or 90s rocker, it's extraordinarily interesting. For someone who wrote the most popular riff of the century, probably, or the last 30 years, it's pretty weird. And it's going back to, like, these 70s sounds. And the last record that he made, I felt like it was like he was, like, back into kind of, like, British prog folk, you mm. know, trafficy kind of stuff. This is more like, you know, with everything he does, this 70s kind of this 
funk stuff. It's like there's a sense of discovery and a sense of kind of really uh, wonder, you know, chasing his ambitions and chasing his kind of weird errant desires in a way that is that is. I think really rare compared to other artists. Now, something that was sort of lurking over this story is, you know, and a couple people recognized it because it was a public thing that happened. As you know, we had a little feud with Jack White. You know, no one in this room, but there was Rolling Stone and Jack White were at odds. Jack was publicly mad. Just, you know, at the way we presented his last cover story, there's some stuff online and he felt we ran a piece that maybe took the highlights from the cover story and he, he used the word tabloid and he may have called us a tabloid in a concert uh, in a YouTube <laughs> clip that went everywhere. And, you know, I, I give it up to like the three people who remembered that and, and were like, wait a second, I thought these guys hated each other. And But, you know, these things kind of pass, Christian, right? It's kind of... Yeah, yeah. Water <laughs> under the bridge. Water under the bridge. I mean, uh, you know, Jack White is a fascinating dude, and it, it would take more than that. Um, we don't hold the grudge. We're, of we're, course. We're, we're, so Jack White has an image, and that image is cranky. And it's uh, there's that there's that amazing photo of him that went viral at a Chicago Cubs game where he has like one yeah. of the great scowls of all time. <laughs> Um, and I, I guess Brian, I, I you know I, I like the Jack White that I that I met and heard from in this story, and I'm I'm wondering sort of how his image squared with the reality of hanging out with him. It's funny I was asked about that on SiriusXM's morning show here on Volume, and I said that I I had actually written a few lines that directly addressed that, where I was like, you know, especially at the beginning, because the in the beginning of the story we set up. The lead of the story is on a Detroit winter evening years ago, Jack White punched a guy in the face really hard and not just once. If you believe the police report, you know, we jump to it and he's not sorry, not at all. And he, he kind of justifies it by saying, you know, sure. So did Johnny Cash. So did Sid Vicious, Jerry Lee Lewis. But all that said, the actual guy that I met didn't seem like he was going to punch anyone in the, in the face. He was very charming, you know, and, and that was that was years ago. And, and you know, self-aware, very self-aware and self-aware and very friendly. And, you know, and that was always his reputation. The flip side is that he, you know, he has extremely good manners. You know, he believes this whole idea of the gentleman. He really believes it. He's very, very cordial. And the thing is, like, he, he did seem to have a little bit of a sense of himself. He seemed to be self-aware. He was funny. And I think, you know, d does he have an edgy side to him? Sure, I saw that too. I mean, it came out in the quotes, but he is likable. And there is, you do end up having a little bit of a caricature of yourself out there and or just an outdated sense of yourself because, you know, people change and people, you know, he's in his 40s now. No one in their 40s is quite as cantankerous as they were, you know, at age 28 or whatever. I, I think most people tend to, if not mellow out, maybe gain hopefully a little bit of, of wisdom. And he, he was just, he was different. But anyway, I, I, I took out the the things where it was like, he isn't what you expect because it, with the idea being, if you don't get that from the larger story, I screwed up. You know, it's just kind of on that sure. show, don't tell thing. So, but I think that's the answer is like that hopefully it comes across that he was kind of fun. I mean, he is funny. I mean, that's the kind of thing that I think people were missing. And, right. and then even, even with some of the stuff that people think is precious or whatever in his artistic presentation is sometimes humorous right you know and and i think well, that that's missing and on this album you kind of hear that humor. his music has always been pretty funny yes but see totally. people sometimes people don't necessarily hear that yeah. you know yeah. or that giant record that plays at like 16 rpm that he put out or it's like yes exactly yeah, that shit's, you know it's goofy but it's like you have to be 
you have to be self-consciously goofy to, yeah, to do something like that. I mean, even even the DJ Khaled comment in the story was was sort of it was just amused talk. He wasn't like he wasn't like trashing DJ Khaled. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I mean he was being funny about DJ Khaled, and you know, but he also listen. I think there's a thing about being Jack White, and he he traced it back even back to the 2000s. Is back when he really was this album. He he used Pro Tools, and which is all interesting. And we maybe we'll get to that, but you know, he he would kind of hand make these white stripe albums with Meg, but you know, everything was sort of played by human hands, made from scratch. Not even you know, not even automation in the mixing. Like everything is so hard. Everything's the hardest way. And he would see, and he literally said, like in the New York Times, there'd be like a you know a mediocre review for Elephant next to like a very positive review for some boy band. And from his perspective, it's just maddening. You know, it's just like, it's just like, you know, I'm, I'm like, what do I have to do here? I mean, obviously we all are sophisticated enough in our ideologies to understand why in theory an album made by hand could be worse than the album, you know, by, by boy band. That, that's all fine. But you can also, if you're, if you're a little bit empathetic, you can understand why if you're Jack White that would drive you insane, right? I mean... Yeah, it's it, funny too yeah. that he's kind of still grappling with all this where yes. he's like, if only I could go back to the 30s. I know there was a lot of racism, but just to be back... <laughs> it's, like, it's a really like... It's like he's, I, I, but that, that earnestness is, is... I like that about him. Like he's, you know, you say exactly. your story, you're kind of like, everyone is cautiously woke and they're very, you know, they kind of understand Understand, like, uh, you know, they're very socially aware these days, and he really does seem like someone who's kind of figuring it out, in, in, in like, in a, the crazy old rock star kind of model where you're getting information from God knows where and you're <laughs> you're putting it in your own sort of picture, how knows why. But it's it's a very kind of honest, earnest way to think about the you know the world, I guess. I think he's sort of like, well, I am this way. There's certain things that maybe I was wrong about or, or emphasized wrong, which is one thing is you know that's significant. If he really was, there was a period in the first decade of the 2000s when he was the guy who would say bad shit about hip-hop you know he would be the guy who'd publicly diss hip-hop you know as a genre which was you know and it, it stood out you yeah. know and but now uh, he's literally putting out rap records on his label yes he is and you know it's one of the first signs is in 2010 i talked to him for we named him one of our artists of the decade and all of a sudden he said you know he was down with hip-hop and that he see he saw more in common with himself with Jay-Z than the Black Stripes. Excuse me, with the Black Keys. See, I'm, uh, I'm buying into his... <laughs> that's, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably how he sees them. But, but Which, by the way, he did not touch this time. But sorry, yeah, he saw himself as having more to do with Jay-Z than the Black Keys, who were surging at that point. But, it, I mean, the thing that I got from that was really interesting is, you know, not only does he like hip-hop, but he, you know, he remembers playing Foursquare on the streets of Detroit as a kid with, like, LL Cool J blaring. So it was, it was part of his life. What he, what he said, and I didn't put it in the article, was that he was the kid though if they're playing the Beastie Boys out if they're playing License to Ill and there's this song where Led Zeppelin is sampled it would suddenly drive him insane that none of the other kids knew that it was a Led Zeppelin <laughs> sample and I think if you kind of think of him as that kid you start to imagine why he would start to rebel almost against hip hop because he was a rock kid and, and that's sort of the side he chose but you know he did end up collaborating with Jay-Z and stuff that's never come out around 2009 and you know one of the there's a couple tracks on this album that actually stem from that totally dead collaboration. And and what Jack said to me, actually, and again, not in this story, is that if it had been any good, it would have come out. It wasn't, it didn't really work. It was Jack kind of recording tracks, making beats physically with his hands, and, you know, Jay would try to rap over them. And there's this one song, and it's kind of interesting, this song over and over and over, 
which he actually tried to record over and over and over. He literally tried to record it with the White Stripes. He tried to record it with Jay-Z. He tried to record it with the Dead Weather, which is, you know, his other band where he played drums. Yeah, he didn't mention trying to record it with the Rock and Tours, but he might have. And one, I think it was Ben Blackwell, one of the Third Man employees, said that, you know, he loved... Ben loved that song, or at least that riff, because it wasn't really a fully developed song. When he played it with Jay, Jay tried to do a, a lyric about something about my Ray-Bans over it that's lost to history. But basically, like people who knew Jack would be like, play that riff, play that over and over riff, because it would be like this kind of lost potential masterpiece. So anyway, on this album, he con- he finally recorded it. And, and one of the keys, weirdly, was they sell a fuzz pedal in Third Man Record Store. It's a particular kind of fuzz pedal. He used that fuzz pedal. Somehow that, that made it right for him. And then also he used the editing of Pro Tools to do stuff to it, including the background vocals. So with all that buildup, let's hear what he finally did with Over and Over and Over. Now, Chris, I'm half convinced that right before he starts singing, there's a little, yeah, and I kind of think it might be Jay. I kind of think that's Jay. I kind of think that he took like one millisecond of Jay's lost vocal and used it, or it just might be Jack imitating Jay. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I think Jay is, is so lawyered up that he, that a millisecond could could get Jay the rights to all of Jack White's albums <laughs> for the next 15 years. Jay-Z is, now the ofi- yeah. Jay-Z is now the official author of Seven Nation Army somehow. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so he, he did get there. And, th- and then we should talk a little bit about the, the process changes. Were you surprised to hear that just like that he's using Pro Tools and whose comment led to the Pro Tools thing? Did that did that strike you? Yeah, um, it was it was Chris Rock, right? Yeah, it was Chris Rock. Uh, the editorial note was it could not possibly have just been Chris Rock. Everyone said that. Uh, Sean Woods, who worked with us, was particularly adamant that it could not have just been a Chris Rock comment, but I think it might have been. I, I don't know. Jack Jack White seems like the kind of guy who might take something that, like that to heart and stew on it for weeks and weeks and weeks and change his belief system because of it. I think it's plausible. And you know those Chris Rock records were produced by Prince Paul, also from Long Island, like Craig Mack, bringing us back to the original segment. I once saw Prince Paul in the studio. I got to see him programming a drum machine. And the, the only person I've ever heard about doing the same thing was Prince. He programmed a beat without headphones and I guess like maybe tapping his foot or something but you know with the whole song in his head and he did the entire beat to the song straight through and uh, literally the only other person I've heard that could possibly do that is Prince so anyway Prince Prince Paul sorry so if Prince is in your name you can do that um, <laughs> anyway so first of all I mean people have been trying to snap Jack White out of his thing and then Jack White's thing is Jack White believes in making things difficult for himself and that if you put these obstacles in your way, you create a frame in which you can create art. And it makes sense. It's sort of like, you know, someone that, you know, you have to do something, give yourself an hour to just do it because then it it's better than, than having three weeks because then you, you give yourself that frame. That's sort of the logic. Well, I mean, we live in yeah. a time without obstacles. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, it is it is the first time in human history where... Now you sound like Jack White, but go it, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, where... Everyone has access to these music programs. Everyone ha- can be a musician and a distributor and a uh, you know a label owner, and you know there's there's absolutely no barriers to access beyond the price of uh, you know a computer and some internet software. 
See, I agree with you, and this is one of the things that I found even before I talked to him as I kind of thought about the whole Jack White thing and read every interview he ever did because that's what you'd end up doing and, you know, listen to his whole catalog. You're like, you know what? People acted like he was crazy for all this, but actually he was just brilliant because he saw that if you don't put a frame around yourself, you certainly can't make rock music because that's why one of the reasons why people have trouble with rock is it's all been done. There's no kind of parameters. It's just, it's, you know, there's no, like he says, there's no label boss saying you can't do this, you can't do that. Mm. And it just, everything's been done and it's just too hard to come up with anything. And by creating a frame and creating, for example, a band and the, the, the ultimate sort of limitation in a way with no insult to Meg White because she's amazing, but it, it creates... A framework, which is whatever you do if you're in the White Stripes, it has to be done with you, Jack White, and Meg White, and those two people, someone who's not, who's a really cool and interesting drummer, but, you know, isn't Ginger Baker, you know, and so it, it creates a framework. Sure, and I think I think the problem comes when people start adding value judgments to whether this is a superior way to do things, a better way to right. do things, and it's, you know, it's like, I'm just as excited that you know we live in a world where you know these amazing tape labels can come out and make these weird disgusting sounds that you know only computer software can do but that that's not better or worse than what Jack it's just it's just a different approach and you know what what I came to realize is Jack agrees with you ultimately it's just what he has to what he felt he has to do and I think that also makes it a lot easier to agree with him but on this album after Chris Rock said to him, Chris Rock did a performance at Third Man in Nashville, Jack's company, and, and he has a performance space there. I guess Jack was basically showing Chris all all his stuff, you know, here's my vintage recording console, here's where we, we, we do the vinyl record from it, and Chris goes, you know, no one cares how it's done. <laughs> and this really shook Jack, and he's laughing talking about it, but it really shook him because that's kind of his whole artistic ethos is how it's done. I wish he hadn't said that to me, Jack told me, because it's haunting my days, because I built my whole artistic creativity on it. But he's right, because nobody fucking cares. Even musicians don't fucking care. And he said he, he would show musicians his stuff. Here's the tape reels. Here's the vintage recording console. And they go, well, I got a computer. Uh, so Jack used Pro Tools on this thing, and he also got himself, which I, I just really find hilarious, he got himself Eddie Van Halen's signature guitar, nice. the Wolfgang Special. Instead of like these shitty pawn shop guitars he's playing, he got something that's incredibly easy to play. And he's, amazingly, he's not joking, if you look at the picture of him with his new band that he's playing live with, he's got the Wolfgang around his neck. He's playing this Van Halen guitar live, which is Amazing, and it's even got the you know it's got a, a whammy bar, so he's probably going to start being he's sort of going to start whammying on the thing, and it's just he did tell me that he's so he's got that a Saint Vincent guitar and a Jeff Skunk Baxter one, and he's he made his own modifications on them, so we'll see. And anyway, this has been a guitar hour, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I'm, but I'm I'm ready for Jack White Snake. Yeah, exactly. Oh, nice, nice. But then we were talking in the break about another thing that Jack said that got under people's it got under other people's skin, the sort of the same way that. That what Chris Rock said to him got under his skin. And that thing was, you know, we were talking, and I'll put it in full context, which is Jack and I were talking about, you know, he's writing songs for this solo album, and he said that sometimes he's writing songs, and he writes a song, and it's like, oh, that's a rock and tour song. And he said he even called up Brendan Metz and was like, dude, I wrote a rock and tour song, and he's going to hold that for, I guess, the next theoretical rock and tours album. The same thing with Dead Weather. He writes a song that's a Dead Weather song. You know, and then that was his entire statement. I said, yeah, but, you know, what about if you write a White Stripes song? And that really seemed to hit the crux of some matter for him. He laughed kind of hard, and he said, 
I want to get this quote exactly right. And he, he, he said, I'm not telling people what to think about the white stripes. They can think whatever they want about it, but there is a case to be made that in a lot of ways, the White Stripes is Jack White solo. In a lot of ways. There's only two people in the band I was writing, producing, and conducting. The melodies are coming from one person. The rhythm is coming from Meg. So uh, what did you guys make of that? You you can certainly make that argument. You can see the argument. I think technically it's true, but it also is probably not the best comment to make right now. And also sort of maybe a... Takes out the contribution she made. You know, she was, I think, first of all, in the in the in how they presented the band, it was just a crucial yeah. thing. The mythology of the band, like Kiss or anything else, really was key to it, and it had a, it made them different than the Hives or whatever they had a mythology to, I guess, but whoever it was. <laughs> and uh, I think you know it sort of discounts her playing, which was you know, in its in a real way unique. What's also like the exact opposite of what he told us four years ago. He, you know, I I have the quote right here. Okay, sure. Um, I would often look at her on stage and say, I can't believe she's up here. I don't think she understood how important she was to the band, to me, and to music. She was the antithesis of a modern drummer, so childlike and incredible and inspiring. All the not talking didn't matter, because on stage, nothing I do will top that. And you know what? He kind of also said something like that to me. But both things can be true. You know, they really can. And I think think for him, he might not have said that if... For him, it's part of a larger context where he also ended up apologizing for something he said about Meg last time because he said, you know, basically she wasn't, she wouldn't celebrate when they had a victory, that kind of thing. And, you know, he made a point of saying, like, he said that he always said how important she was. And that is true. The kind of thing that you just said, he would say over and over again. So maybe he feels, I've said this a million times, but I also want to make this other point. So, you know, one thing that's very cool about him is, you know, he knew what he was saying. At least I think it's cool. I understand, you know, the other side. But, you know, he knew what he was saying. He did not hesitate at all. He didn't try to take it back. He didn't try to say he didn't say it. He wanted to say it, so he said it, you know, and there you there you have it. Yeah, I think one of the keys to this story and one of the things that makes it a great story is that Jack White is not on social media. And mm. so n- none of these thoughts have come out in any other form, and they were all saved up for this excellent cover story. And also I don't, I don't think he worries about the reaction in the way that someone who's compulsively checking Twitter might. And, um... I, I found the big comment a little odd. It's not like someone was denying him credit for his work in the White Stripes, but, you know, it, it felt honest. I think there is a thing is interesting, uh, you know, just looking at, at Reddit, which is, I don't know, if a thing that I can advise someone to do, but just, I don't know, it was, it was not a Jack White forum, some other forum, but I just saw that someone was like, oh, I, it was about festivals. And they're like, oh, I can't believe Jack White's headline this festival. Like, I don't know any of his solo stuff. And someone's like, no, 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 no. Like, he actually plays all of his music live. It's not just, you know, and they're like, oh, that's awesome. So maybe it's part of it is that it's just like he's just wants to, he's embodying all this stuff under his name so it just must be this weird thing where it's like the jack white name is different than the white stripes brand name and which he acknowledges it's like he's left this brand that he had behind and that must be a weird tough thing because even if he wanted to meg clearly doesn't want to do it and i think this is i think he's now fully grappled with that mourning that loss of this thing the white stripes did the comments in the story that you uh, expected to provoke reaction online uh, prove to do so well, I'd like to say that I, I don't give that stuff very much thought, Fair. but I but I, I did in the moment. I'm just kind of talking to them and 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 not really thinking that way. Later, I realized, oh, that might be a thing, and you know, I think people took a, a, a gendered implication from that, 
which is, you know, I understand it bumped people out and that's, you know, and that's cool. I, all I would say is to people who took it that way is to look at the entire history, like Chris said, of what he said about Meg. And there is, you know, and I, I think it's a bunch of complicated feelings, but, but, you know, at the same time, like she helped define the character of the thing. And I think that, you know, I have a, a lot of thoughts about this because in one way, I mean, if you go from Icky Thump to his first solo album, there's a very clear continuity there. It's not that different. On the other hand, it is di- it's, it's very, it's very it's wildly confusing. different. Yeah. yeah. Like it's, yeah. you know, like it, it is, uh, it is completely different to me, I think, stylistically and sound wise. Like I, I feel like it did become a different band as soon as it became the Jack White show. And it's just like a Paul McCartney solo record or a John Lennon solo record. You know, it's 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 not this thing that we embraced. And, it's different. And at the same time, the weird thing, and I think about this all the time. It's like there are Beatles songs that are that are Paul McCartney solo songs. So it's as much a mentality in this, like you know, back in the USSR, practically no one else plays anything. He plays drums in that song, Paul McCartney. So it's like. It's this weird thing where bands are as much concepts sometimes as they are the actual people playing in them. So, so maybe that's the difference. I don't, I'm not. I'm not sure. But it was nice to get the reaction like that from people. Not the part where people were angry about Meg, but just that people read the story and, and seemed to react to it and were interested in what he had to say. The DJ Khaled thing was was definitely a thing. We, we touched on that, but basically the you know listen. He, he watched the Grammys. He yeah, that saw, was an interesting yeah. fact. He's yeah. like watching the Grammys. <laughs> oh, yeah. He knows who DJ Khaled is. He's willing to make fun of him in a way that's pretty funny. Yeah, are we so, sure this guy's not online? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So, anyway, this has been Rolling Stone Music Now. Thanks for joining me, guys. And we'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Maybe leave us a nice comment on iTunes or wherever else takes comments. And in the meantime, we'll see you next week. And as always, thanks for listening. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.